there. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is Queer Sounds with the QS Summer of Sound. Um, rapidly approaching an end here. Like, we've only got two more episodes left. It's insane. Time is flying by. As always, my name is Hannah. My pronouns are they, them. And you're tuned into a podcast on Queer Folk's favorite tunes. Hi there. Um, I know that I have my fair share of Americans on this summer. Um, but I'm gonna give you some more because on, uh, because opposite of me, there is the wonderful JD Denner. How there, how are you? Hey, thank you so much. I'm wonderful. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm so happy to be here. Happy to have you on. Um, so could you introduce yourself a little bit? Uh, who are you? What do you do in daily life? What are your pronouns? Sure, I am J.D. Danner, and my pronouns are she and her, and I'm, I'm uh, an artist, a recording artist, a singer-songwriter, performer uh, here in the United States. I, my career has been over 20 years of performing my original music, and some of the work I do as far as um, being philanthropic with my music is I have toured to perform at military bases here in the States and overseas, uh, U.S. military bases, and also I like to be philanthropic with my music, so I love to do anything that can bring joy and something positive and awareness to uh, situations that need awareness, such as um, Domestic Violence, which is a song, my song Shelter from the Shame, is, um, is a song that was a fundraiser for an organization that helps women and children that are victims of domestic violence. And I also partnered with the American Cancer Society with my song, A Brand New Angel, as a fundraiser for their Relay for Life events. So I've been doing this a while and I like to give back when I can. I didn't expect you to go into a full full bio there. Oh, uh, <laughs> oh would you wrap? Oh, yeah, no, it's, this is perfect. Thank you. It's... Uh, I'm, okay. I, it, usually it's just hi my name is this and my pronouns are she here and I move on from there but I'm um, great you're already eager to show people who you are and what you do so um, <laughs> d before we really dive into the nitty gritty of your music though um, during a quarantine like many other of us you started a podcast could you shine a little light on that as like a you know not necessarily your core business because that would be your music but this is also something you do and enjoy right what's 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 it called what's it about it's called the rainbow rainbow remix and that came about because when we were in quarantine and we were not going anywhere i still wanted to create and i realized when i got on a live stream on facebook and i played a few songs i was reaching people all over the world And I was getting fan messages from people in Spain and people in England and Italy. So I decided to do the podcast because I, I liked the idea of, of being able to reach people from the studio in my house. So I contacted my friend who is a longtime host of a podcast called The Lesbian Lounge that is uh, no longer in existence. Um, she, they did it for like 12 years in the 90s, through the 90s, and uh, her name is is uh, Denise Warner, and she's in London. So we do the podcast 
um, with her in London and me in South Florida. And it's just been really kind of cool because we've literally had guests from all over the world, as you, as you know, you can do, Hannah. And uh, and it was it's been great because I've met so many ex, you know extraordinary, amazing people through doing this podcast. And we have basically it's an arts and entertainment um, podcast for the LGBTQ community. So we have um, most people um, are comedians and musicians, but we have people from all walks of life that are doing something to be a game changers in the LGBTQ community. All right. We'll make sure to include a link in the show notes. If you're interested, you can have a listen. But first, I think it's about time we are going to have a listen to the first track that um, JD picked for today. Um, is one of the greatest artists of all time by far. Um, I bet by now you already know who I'm talking about when you're listening to these wonderful voices. This is Stevie Wonder, Masharia Moore. This is definitely the type of artist where I need to be careful because um, if I'm not careful, I will definitely just kind of lose track of time. And before you know it, the entire song is over and um, a song turns into an album. Album turns into the entire (laughs) discography of Stevie Wonder, the one, the only my Cherie Amour, a track um, released when he was only 19 years old um, back in mm. back in the 60s. So, yeah, that's something I tend to forget about Stevie Wonder. Like, he is definitely, um, I, I mostly know him for, like, the Songs in the Key of Life album. But mm-hmm. yeah, I often forget that's, that he has been around since the '60s. So, why did you uh, select? Why did you select this song for uh, for today's show? This song was one of the first. I was a little kid when this song came out. First of all, so this song was one of the first pop songs that I was introduced to as a child because I had an older sister who's ten years older than I am. So, 
Um, she was listening to pop music and rock music way before I would be thinking about listening to it. And growing up as a, a child in an Italian family in New York, we always listened to Frank Sinatra. That's what I was exposed to initially, you know, um, Dean Martin, the Rat Pack. But when I heard this, and my sister got the 45 to this, um, I loved this song. And this was the first song as a child that I started singing along to. And I would put the little 45 on and stand next to the record player, and I would just keep singing it over and over again. And I guess I had good taste at six years old because um, this is a great song still today. I mean, it just when you ask me to think of a song for today's show for this reason, um, I when I picked it, I'm now I've just been listening to it every day because I forgot how amazing you know this song is. But yeah, this is very special to me because this was the first song that I would be singing as a child, and my grandfather used to give me a dollar when I would sing for guests that came over the house. So that was like I guess my first paying gig. <laughs> so. Um... What made this stand out? Like, I mean, Frank Sinatra, uh, also great music, but what, what mm -hmm. made this um, what made this so different to you? I think it was the beat, it was the feel. There was that uh, harmonica part in there. You know, I just think that um, there was a different feel to this song than to the... And I do love the Rat Pack stuff. I mean, I have a Frank Sinatra album actually now because we're going back to vinyl um, in my record player right now but I just loved the groove and the feel of this song there was just a different feel from from the Rat Pack type of music and as a kid this really spoke to me um, so as a six-year-old you being exposed to like the Rat Pack and Stevie Wonder where did your music taste go from there like what were you when you um hit puberty for example that's usually when people start discovering new music what um what was the type of stuff that you started to listen to then at that point i had switched over to r&b and i loved all the groups like the stylistics the temptations um you know just all those those groups that sang and danced and and just had this beautiful Romantic. It was almost like a sexy kind of music back then, um, and it was just uh, I just love the the feel of that music. But I was I was diversified actually when I first started to get into music. First, you know, as a kid, uh, back then I was actually just thinking about this the other day. Um, is in terms of top 40 music back in the 70s. It was very diversified, even in the top 40. Like you could hear Karen Carpenter and you could hear, um, you know, Leonard Skinner on the same station in the same top 40. And I think that now I don't feel we're as diversified in our music that you hear on the radio. Like you tend to hear the same people. But I think back then, you know, Linda Ronstadt was singing Blue Bayou and And then she had a Rolling Stones song that she covered oh, a few years earlier than that. So it was such a diversified list of songs that I also liked the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac and groups like that. So I, I think you could probably say I was listening to a mixture of R&B and like the, the acoustic uh, pop rock of the 70s. 
Right. Who introduced you to that stuff? Was it just the radio? Was it your parents? Was it a friend? What made you realize that you love this type of stuff? It was definitely the radio. I mean, I always had the radio on first thing in the morning. I had the little clock radio next to my bed <laughs> to wake up for school. <laughs> I still have that clock, particular clock radio, by the way, in my office. And uh, and it still works. But um, yeah, so I would. it was from the radio, definitely. And then my older sister, she was listening to, she loved The Doors and Carole King. That's another artist I was introduced to as a child and loved uh, the whole Tapestry album. I just knew backwards and forwards. I would sometimes like... When it was Christmas time, I'd be like laying under the Christmas tree with my little recorder, the tape recorders, when the cassette players came out. That was what I wanted for Christmas. And just listen to that album over and over again. So my sister, my older sister was a big influence in what she was listening to. And then also um, just the radio. How um, did you decide what station to listen to on the radio? Was it just Was it just a general... What the first thing you came across after browsing through the tuner a little bit, or did you have like a preferred station? There were a few stations that were the popular stations, and then that I would listen to. And then there was uh, Casey Kasem used to have the countdown on a Sunday, and he would always have like stories to go along with the tunes, and he would do the countdown from I think it might have been the top forty. I don't remember how many songs he actually counted down from but that was the station that you listened to to hear anything that was happening that was new and popular so you know when you go to school people are always talking about their music and when I was in high school there was the big debate between disco and rock and it was a divide between the kids you either were a rock person or you were a disco person and the two did not usually ever cross <laughs> although being in music a music person i liked both sides of it but you know i had to choose a side yeah no the the entire punk versus disco thing in 77 is entirely what i what, what i dedicated my high school research career to so, yes <laughs> uh um i i i i need to I need to focused right now because this is definitely something I could talk about for hours. So let's not, um, <laughs> but, um, like I, I just love the, what you mentioned with, um, Casey Kasem type of type of stuff, because with so many C's uh, in an alliteration, like I can, I feel like I can already hear the, 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 the station voice. Like I can already hear the Casey mm-hmm. Kasem in the countdown, 97.6. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, no, am- amazing. So um, I feel like the um, subject, I, I, f- I feel uncomfortable talking about this um, because I'm used to talking like people my age where you're obviously like older. And I, I feel like I'm having some issue like asking the right questions because, you know, I wasn't there in the 70s. So like I don't know what life was like, which made it sound even further ago than it is. Um, but like what, uh, what, what, what's your general experience as like queer American in the seventies in, you know, uh, in, 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 in Florida, because I feel like that's not something that has been covered a lot, even though it was such an important time for like the LGBTQIA plus community at large. 
Definitely. Well, I actually, I grew up in, in New York on Long Island. So when I was a kid, I was up in, um, in New York, but I, you know, it was obviously not as wonderfully free and, and people weren't as open and out as they are now. So artists like Barry Manilow, for example, no one knew he was gay and everyone, um, you know, all the girls loved him and all of his music was so driven towards, you know, the guy wanting to get the girl back or losing the girl. And I knew people that knew him that grew up with him in Brooklyn and they knew he was gay. I knew it also. It was just interesting because the, you know, people just didn't really think that way. And I think that artists had a much more be in the closet back then, um, definitely, than they can be now. Then they have to be, you know, they don't need to be now, which is great. Um, so yeah, growing up back then, the world in general was just so different. It's amazing, like, I'm sure, you know, I would have had a much different 20s, first part of my life, 20s and 30s, if the world was like it is now. You know, we've made great strides in the community in the last, um, you know, 20, 30 years. So it's for people, for younger people, it's it's so freeing. It's really an amazing thing to see that. Um, although, you know, with, with all of the new legislation going on, it can also be a very scary time. People trying to turn back time, as it were. Exactly. Yeah, it's, a, it's still a struggle, which is amazing. You know, that's also amazing. But as someone who was a kid in the 70s, um, it, it's also you know, it's very different and it's different in a much better way. Uh, even though we're not there yet, you know, there's still people that do want to turn back the hands of time. That's true. You mentioning like the, the split between like the, the rock camp and, the and the, the R and B disco camp. Like, is that also why you were more, um, why you tended to go towards the, um, R&B side of things because you know that disco and R&B is much more of a, a queer genre uh, especially at the time than than you know the the white rock the male purists basically um is th is that why you um why you preferred a lot of R&B at the time You know that's very interesting that you say that I think probably subconsciously um, that's totally the reason why. I never really even thought that about that, but definitely that's true. You know, I grew up um, in a very conservative Italian family where the girls, you know, got married in their early 20s and had children, and that was what people did. And so I was 16 years old, 15, 16, wanting to be Billie Jean King. I wanted to be a tennis star back then and very much in that world and not realizing at the same time who I was because it just wasn't an option at that point, you know? And, and so I think I found a lot of that in the music. It's, that's, that's really very true, yes. And um, I did stay very much on that side of things. And I wasn't a cool kid, first of all, I should probably tell you. In high school, I was not one of the cool people, but definitely one of the more artistic people. So with the, with the power of hindsight, could you pinpoint like a specific song or artist that made you think, oh dear, I'm queer? <laughs> yes, and, and 
like I said, like the first two decades of my life would have been different because, well, not for decades, but the first two decades of my adult life, the 20s and 30s, uh, would have been different if I had heard Melissa Etheridge, I'm the only one, like the way I do, bring me some water, all those songs that she played, um, that she wrote. There was something about her that you just got that feeling that they were lesbian lyrics, that they were, it was queer music, although she didn't really come out either until the uh, I, Yes I Am album, and, like, and not like the way I do, I'm the only one was her big hit on that album, the first big hit. Everyone was talking about it then, and so when I listened to her music and her lyrics, she was really very clever in never assigning gender to her her lyrics. So when she sang about her other person, she never said he, which was the way I, when I wrote my first album, I was very mindful of that when I wrote the lyrics and I too did not say he or assign gender to that, uh, to any of my lyrics. So um, Melissa Etheridge, the, uh, we're definitely gonna play some of her songs later this episode, but that's a lot further down the timeline. Um, yes. So, like, back in the 70s, you not being a cool and artsy kid, listening to the more queer kind of music, with the power of hindsight, do you feel like you ha could still, like, get a sense of belonging that way? Because you you know, basically didn't feel at home in, like, the, the rock purist camp of it all. Right, yes. And you had artists, like... Uh, Donna Summer and Gloria Gaynor and those people that and and Diana Ross that were singing songs that um, about being empowered as a woman and so making your own way and and being your own person and that was really the beginning of feeling like you want to be who you are to be true to yourself. All right, I think it's about time that we uh, get some Melissa Etheridge going. Why the hell not? Um, in the category of favorite uh, queer artist released in 1988 um, I think yeah 88 mm -hmm. Like the mm -hmm. Way I Do by Melissa Etheridge let's have a listen Is it so hard to satisfy your senses you found out to Along the floor I touch you And just when it feels right You say you found someone to hold you Does she like I do? Baby, tell me does she love you Like the way I love you Does she stimulate you Attract and captivate you Tell me does she miss
I never paid attention to this. I had heard this song on the radio before. From the way you described it earlier, this definitely sounds a lot more queer with like the, the, the knowledge that you've just spread in this podcast. So thank you for that. You've given me a whole new appreciation for Melissa Etheridge. Like the way I do, released 1988 off of the Melissa Etheridge album. So um, you mentioned that it was the Yes I Am album released in 93 that made you closer to the queer realization. So why did you decide to go with uh, this song anyway? Because this was my first introduction to realizing that you know who I who I was which I probably knew all along but you know kind of I was back in the subconscious or whatever and so I loved this is when I first started listening to uh, a female artist that wrote lyrics that did not mention a guy you know did not mention he and did not mention the other person being any you know being a woman or a, or a man so you kind of realize that she was probably singing about another woman and when i started writing it was her yes i am album that actually made me want to start writing music myself but i loved what she had to say on this first album i think that was one of her best albums that first album which was called melissa etheridge i think it was a self-titled album uh she had so many great songs on that album Uh, and she combined a lot of blues type of roots to her rock, which was just a lot of women weren't doing. So, and she wrote all of her own music. That was the other thing that really amazed me. Everything on her album she wrote herself. Yeah, so for like um, historical, historical subject makes it sound so long ago, but you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> Like for for musical context, like this was the same time when, for example, someone like Pat Benatar had already gone way more pop. I guess this was also like around the rise of Whitney Houston, Janet Jackson. So I feel like this is like maybe a little bit ahead of her, ahead of her time. Like with with what was coming later in the '90s with acts like I don't even know. I'm blanking on 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 similar examples here. But to what extent? Uh, did Melissa Etheridge also like made you the artist that you are today? Um, well, definitely being the girl with the guitar and the girl that wrote all of her own songs, like I mentioned before. And she had she wrote from a place. Her lyrics are so intense; they're not. When she says things, she doesn't just say. I missed you or I love you like she'll say it in 
an intense type of a way like I've hungered for you know she'll use the word hunger or the word I've been scratching like the, her line in one of her songs scratching and crawling reaching under the fence uh, she has a song called ruins and she's very visual with what with her lyrics so it's just a very raw feeling of her intensity of how she felt about missing this person and losing this person and trying to get them back you know that the lyric in that song is um, reaching under the fence uh, scratching and crawling through the ruins is such a, a visual intense type of a way and the pain that that brings um, I just felt she was a very empowered woman writing music that wasn't whiny you know like Taylor Swift writes about her boyfriends and whatever and you know and, and Alanis Morissette did it also in a very angry way um, she's kind of in the middle but she's not like a like a whiny a whiny woman I do feel like Alanis Morissette was the example I couldn't find earlier like uh, when when it comes to like w women who were a big in pop rock in like the late 80s early 90s um, so Uh, the example you mentioned, Ruins, is also of the Yes I Am album. Um, what with you know titles like "I'm the Only One," "If I Wanted to," "Come to My Window," like all of these titles just kind of scream the Sephic love experience, um, especially with the lyrics that you just clarified um, earlier. What what would you say is like the biggest difference between the Yes I Am era Melissa and the Titleist debut era Melissa? Definitely the fact that she was out and came out with that album Yes I Am. Um, she was still not out with that first album and when she came out with I'm the Only One and that was on the radio I think I think the story goes that someone outed her in the media with that album. And she just went with it then. And and it actually made that album much more popular right out of the chute. Not that it didn't have great music on it, because it does, but she was freer, and it was a whole different feeling about when you went to see Melissa Etheridge. And people knew who she was. And it was just amazing to see that being an artist at the time Start. I was at that time. I was playing cover music. I was playing in the bars, and the clubs, and the venues down here in South Florida. And I just was very intrigued by the reaction to that album. And when I started to go to her concerts, I started to see the women that were going to her concerts, and it was definitely a very um, specific audience that was going to see her. But she does have fans across the across the spectrum. So it's like you know it's. She has a lot of men that love her music, and but it was definitely a place where gay women went to hear music, and to you know to kind of like join together and and see the artist that was out and proud, and and playing her music for everyone to hear without without trying to hide who she was anymore. Uh, what you what you described like this sense of liberation that she sounded freer like could you also hear that in her music definitely i definitely think it was even in her performance and then in her videos she started using other women in her videos, straight women 
um, because a lot of her lyrics on that album, and even on the first album, are unrequited love type of lyrics, and she's, you know, trying for the person that she can't have, and so um, she had Gwyneth Paltrow in one of her videos, and she had Juliet. Uh, Lewis in, an, in the Come to My Window video, and she had uh, Gwyneth Paltrow was in um, wasn't it wasn't like the way I do no that was on the other album it was on the second it was on the Yes I Am album there was another song she was on as well and uh, she was in the video and so uh, I think you could even see, it was evident in her videos that she was now um, really who she is and living her truth so. When we're talking 1993, like this specific era of queer liberation is also, it's got its ups and downs, so to speak. Um, mm -hmm. Like, for example, if we're, uh, it was, if I remember it correctly, around the peak of festivals like, like um, Mitch Fest or like all of the, those, those, those Riot Girl festivals, we kind of have like some bad thoughts about them because they turned out to be rather transphobic for example like but how how did you experience that at the at the time you mean like festivals like lilish fair and yeah and exactly festival yeah that's that was you know the aspiration to when you are a girl with a guitar that writes your music and especially if you were queer you wanted to be on that roster to play that festival um, I think you're right in the fact that there were maybe some ne negative outcomes from from those festivals and I think they weren't drawing the numbers that other festivals did in terms of, of people coming to see the acts but it was a it was a huge festival in in and of itself uh, you know I, I think that maybe some people thought it was a girls club um, I don't remember in Lilish Fair if the band had to be all women as well I don't think so I don't remember but um, I played a, a local festival here called Lilith Fair <laughs> someone named Lilith made an all girl festival, an all-woman uh, female artist festival in Orlando, Florida. And uh, it was just an interesting, you know, interesting to see that it, it brings uh, it, a sense of unification to women um, in the queer world, like a place to go to hear your music and be with your people. So um, you said that was the goal, like, was that also like something that you... Um, did you aspire to like play festivals like that when 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 you released your first album in the 90s? Yes, most definitely. I really really wanted to get on those rosters, but it's it's very hard to do. The music industry in and of itself is has gotten so much more difficult through the years and now with the internet and what people are doing as indie artists we have other paths and ways of doing it but back then you if you got on that roster you had you were starting to make a name for yourself with the women you know what and, and i know what you mean like some of those women's festivals like they have women's fest uh that's happens in the um the, i think it's in the midwest in ohio um where people are camping and doing drum circles at night and just a whole nice wonderful way of of artists female artists coming together and 
and sharing their music and their art, they do get uh, negative connotations of people saying that they're they hate men or you know they they're just women with bad hygiene that go out in the woods and camp and you know make music and you know I think that sometimes you hear that about those those festivals from women themselves. I've heard that about some of those women's festivals that are like that. But for the women that get to go play those festivals, it's not like that. It's an, it's actually a uh, an amazing experience. I think Tracy Chapman came through those festivals uh, making her name. I mean, let's be honest, bad hygiene, making music out in the woods, that sounds like a hell of a lot of fun. <laughs> right. <laughs> Having a drum circle at the, in the light of the moon at, in the evening, you know, after you've been listening to music all day in different, under different tents and different stages. Yes, definitely. <laughs> To put it to put it really bluntly, like where did it go wrong? What what? Um, how come you never played any the, any of the festivals that you wanted to play back in the day? It was just a matter of I, I wasn't seasoned enough. I didn't have enough of a name, or I didn't have a, a manager or anyone that could get me in to play those. It's it's hard to get even heard. I mean, you know, you try to submit, and it'll say uh, they wanted they didn't want any unsolicited submission so even if you went ahead and sent your cd anyway usually it didn't get listened to and it got sent back to you on open because they didn't want to they didn't want you to think that they listened to it and either took something from it or that that happens a lot with a lot with writing when you submit your music if it's unsolicited they won't open it because they don't want to ever be accused of hearing lyrics that they used on something they wrote But um, it's just really, it was really hard to break through. I didn't have a name in music at that point. And I was just a person in South Florida playing in the venues and whatever women's bars I could find. I was playing a lot in bookstores and cafes. It was almost like the coffee house feeling. Um, there were a few that were specifically for women. And uh, that was just a great time. Um, so was that your main strategy, like just play a lot and uh, see when people would pick up on it? Yeah, I mean, I, I played everywhere and anywhere. My friend would tease me that I would play at the opening of even an envelope <laughs> just to be heard <laughs> and, uh, and just to get my music out. Like I would boldly send it wherever, like I, because when I, when you, when I did my, when I produced my first CD, When I released my first CD, I should say, I um, thought the whole world was going to just love it and needed to hear it. And, you know, you're very naive and it's a wonderful place to be because you take chances that the more you're doing this, the more you get guarded and a little more like, well, you know, maybe I'm not good enough for that yet because you start to get the feeling of you know, uh, there's so many great people out there doing this, like, why do they need me? Like, you, I felt that way when I went to Nashville, because there's a lot of good people doing the same thing, going for the same brass ring. So um, my philosophy in the beginning was, oh, I need to get this out there, wait till these people hear it. And then when you start getting rejection, which you always do in this business, you start getting a little more guarded. So yeah, in the beginning, that was my strategy, just play your music everywhere and let people hear you and send it everywhere and you know you, you get it's it's a good place to be sometimes in the beginning because you're you're wonderfully naive are there moments where you think where you wish you were still as naive as you were then 
Do you still take risks, for example? I still take risks, um, but definitely I do. Like I, I say, I, I remember when I would walk into a, a place that was having an open mic, for example, and say, I could play the drums, you know, and sit down and start playing the drums with the band in the open mic. And then as I started playing more and realizing the difference between a really good drummer and a not so great drummer, I was like, I'm not going to get up and play because I knew the difference then. So it is kind of nice because you do take risks that you might not really, you know, you might be a little more guarded to do. But I've tried to break through that. I've, I've, there was a period where I was a lot more guarded and now I'm just like, you have to go for it. And sometimes you get really surprised, like you throw something out there and you actually do get what you're asking for or what you, you know, what you set out to do if you want to get into a, a certain venue or a certain festival or a certain event. Um, yeah, I, I think that definitely I'm more guarded, but I've gotten better. Uh, is that also something you would say comes with age? Um, like back when you're young and naive, you just kind of do whatever. Then as you hit um, like 10 years later, you start getting more like looking for backup plans and finding a day job and doing something cozy and comfortable. But then as you grow even older, you'd think, okay, well, whatever, fuck it. I've got nothing to lose anyway. I've got everything to fall back on in case shit hits the fan. So let's just roll with it and see what happens. Like, do you feel like, let's put it this way, th th there are fewer risks in taking risks, like financially or like reputation-wise or whatever. Do you feel, is that, is that something that you find is the case? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, there's the, there's a line in one of my songs, uh, there's a freedom in the feeling, there's nothing left to lose. And it's like after you've tried so many things and you, it's exactly like you said, there's, less risk in taking a risk than not trying for something. But you definitely do think about, well, financially, you know, the older you are, you start to think I need to be stable. You need to know that you have a solid ground. And it is a, it is a very big struggle. It's such a pull because there are days I love to, I would love to just focus on my music. I would love to just sit there and, you know, write new songs and, pitch for whatever I, you know, I want to do and just be doing that, but it's not paying the bills. So I, you know, you have to go and I have a business that's a family business. I'm part owner in, which makes it very, I'm very grateful for because it makes it much easier for me to pursue my music in ways that I couldn't if I had stayed in corporate America, which I started out doing um, before I played music professionally. I was an accountant. And uh, if I had stayed there, I would not have had the freedom to travel and make my schedule so I could play shows in the middle of the week, late at night, um, and you know, not have to worry about getting to work in the morning. So I guess I'm very, very fortunate that I have that in my, in my life so I could pursue my music a lot more freer than some other people can that are, have to worry about um, the nine to five job as well. But um, artistically taking those risks you have to just get I think you get to a point when you're older that you have a thicker skin so when you get that rejection you don't feel crushed and you don't feel you're not good enough you just feel you weren't what that person was looking for it's very takes a lot to get to that part to get to that point well in pursuit of music I say we'd take your example in it and listen to 
Silver Springs by Fleetwood Mac off of the legendary Rumors album. Um, third song of the day. Here we go. You could be my silver spring, blue green colors flashing. I would be your only dream. You shine in an ocean crashing. Don't say. Silver Springs, Fleetwood, Mac, released 1977, probably one of the best years in music history, which, you know, um, while that track was playing, I Mm -hmm. uh, suddenly had a thought. We've been having this wonderful conversation, but we hardly talked about your own music um, so far. So... I'd say let's do that. Um, how would you how would you describe uh, the the music that you made back in the '90s, like around your around your first album? Well, for one, as I mentioned earlier, I definitely did wrote in the style of Melissa Etheridge, where there I did not make a reference to uh, gender. And right out of the shoot, when I did that, and at that point I was playing the gay bars and the women's bars, the lesbian bars. I, um, the women got it, so I started getting a whole lot of fans in the world that I was now wanting to be part of. And I started playing Pride Fests and any kind of event I could in the LGBTQ community. And that definitely had uh, an influence on my writing. And not just Melissa Etheridge, but Stevie Nicks, Joan Jett, some of the other women that, that write music also, the other major players, um, I felt I had something to say, and it wasn't always about love and loss. What I started doing was writing for philanthropic reasons, which I had mentioned earlier, and I really got a great feel of the magic of the power of music, uh, what the power of music could do to inspire other people in a good way. So. Um, that got me involved in different organizations 
using my music to help other people like the American Cancer Society and women in distress um, to bring awareness to domestic violence and to raise funds for the American Cancer Society were just two or just two I did some many many dog rescue benefits and performed for the troops so my writing took a turn where I was now writing subjects for subjects like that with a reason for basically you know a rebel with a cause kind of a thing um, so yeah definitely had a, a influence so your first album uh, came out in 98 and so five years after the Melissa Etheridge uh, Yes I Am album How did how did you manage to get that album out there? Because you know, like you said, it was it was a struggle in the beginning, and you had to just play a lot, and, and you had to be lucky to be picked up. But in the end, apparently, you did get picked up and were able to release an album. So how did that how did that go? Um, you mean the second album that came out? Maybe it's just me album. No, I meant or the first one. I meant the I meant the first one. Yeah. The very first one. Um, I met some musicians that uh, had a studio, and we had played together in a band. So I said, "Hey, you know, I'm writing some songs. I I would love to make a CD." And um, that was such a big deal in my life. It was like all I talked about for like a year. And <clears throat> I told them, I'll, "I'm coming to you every week with a new song I'm writing, and let's put it down and let's let's make a CD." So um, I did that, and that pretty much that whole album was uh, very uh, a very um, subconsciously or subliminally my coming out album because the lyrics were very much about that. I have a song called "White Picket Fences" that's about a trapped woman, a housewife, woman, you know, married woman that wants that has other desires. And then I wrote, you know, some of the unrequited love type lyrics too, where there's someone that you want, but you can't have them. And um, so for me, that's where that album was. That's before the philanthropic uh, vein that I got, you know, it was before that. It was just definitely, I have something to say. I want to write my own music. And I found some people that have a studio. So it was, a, that mu that CD was, was good and a lot of it was I was really what happened was I was very pleasantly surprised how much people liked my writing and so uh, it that's where I got the encouragement to keep going and that was the CD that I just sent everywhere because I thought there's all hits on this CD the whole world needs to hear it you know then I really got a taste of what the music business is like but yeah that's basically how that that went I wanted to say something through my music and I think subconsciously it was my my coming out story so like you if if, if we're running some quick maths here you said you were six by the time you first heard um, Stevie Wonder that means you were around like 35 when you released your first album which you know for an artist that's relatively late um, mm -hmm. was it I mean, I bet it was your goal to like start uh, to to release an album a bit sooner than that, but it just didn't happen. Or, or was it also because you just got into music relatively late? Yes, that is, <clears throat> excuse me, a, a really big part of my story now because I started way later 
than anyone starts playing music professionally. So because of the way I grew up, like I grew up in a very musical family, but they never regarded music as a career. So it was like your hobby and you go to college, you get a career or you get married and you have kids. And so that was the mindset I grew up with. So I, I became an accountant. I, I was in corporate America right out of school and right out of college. And I didn't even give it a thought. And it was only after I went through five years of a very emotionally and physically tough, uh, stre uh, stressful period with endometriosis and infertility that I needed to feel joy again because I had spent five years feeling not in control of even my own body and just miserable, just sheer hopelessness. And I said, I, I just need to feel happy again. And I started taking vocal lessons and I just went back to the thing that I had joy with as a child. And I remember walking into the class and the teacher was younger than I was. And I was 28 at the time, but I thought I was so old because, you know, people don't start at 28 to just start taking vocal lessons. And even though I had, like I said, I was very musical as a child, but it didn't even go any further. So she told me, it doesn't matter how old you are. You're gonna just be the same age you're gonna be in 10 years from now, go and play music. And in fact, I just told her that on Facebook because she saw an article, uh, a news clip I was just in, and she was telling me how proud she was of me. But what you needed, I needed people like that to tell me it's okay to start at 30 years old to play in the bars because I was 28 when I just started taking vocal lessons and I didn't put a band together and start playing in the venues here till a couple of years later. So I always felt behind the eight ball. I always felt like I was chasing time because of that. And now it's just, it has reversed itself at this point in my life where I feel like I'm pretty proud of the fact that I didn't stop and that I'm still doing this. And I have something to say as a person of my age now, you know, but definitely I felt like I should have done it 10 years earlier, if not sooner. You're absolutely right about that. Um, as a little bit of a disclaimer, like we've been talking about how old, quote unquote, you were when you started music and like specifically you were 28 when you start vocal lessons. I am 28 right now. So yes, I'm also definitely calling myself old. So I feel like... Don't. <laughs> so according to Spotify, your, your most recent album, I should say, came out in mm -hmm. 2009, which, you know been a while what have you been doing since then i um i wrote it i've been writing singles instead of doing full cds i did some touring uh, i played of uh, like as i mentioned performing at military bases u.s military bases around the the states and also overseas and then i took a little bit of a break but it, when the pandemic came i started writing again when we were just in quarantine, along with starting the podcast, I started writing again. And I wrote my first song that I released, my first song that I had ever, I had released in five years. But I did another album uh, since the one in 2009 called House Blend, which was uh, locally recorded and it was a series of cover music, just my favorite cover songs and a few new ones that I wrote and some that's some of my friends, some local artists, some of their songs and it was 
I never really released that in a big way. Like that's that album is not on Spotify and and any of the digital media. But I released it almost as a vanity project. But it was something local. Like if you came to my shows, I had CDs to sell for that. And it, it is up on my social media, my website. But that song was just music I wanted to play. And that was a fun album to do because it was very. There was no stress. There was no worry about. What is the music world going to think? Will I get played on this station? Um, that was just for me. Um, speaking of things that are uh, just for us now, basically, you sent me for the final track of the day a um, remix of of the song "The Lover You Once Knew." Um, it's a 90s remix. The, uh, the original song, The Lover I Once Knew, is on stimulation, uh, Stimulating Sacrifice, your, your 98 album. Why, why did you send this one in for today's show? Well, you know, um, you had asked like, if there was something that, was, uh, that had been under the radar for all these years and, and, or something that was just released, and that was really fit both of those categories because I had recorded that Again, just for me, that when I did that back in, I don't know what year it was. What Did I say what year it was? 1998? Yeah, it was in the 90s, and was like around the time when Cher came out with Believe. And I was like, I want to do something like that. And I did it, and then it was like, at the time, I was trying to get uh, a deal as a country artist. And my goal was I was going to be the first uh, New Yorker, Long Island girl to be, you know, getting the country in the country genre, like to be the next country big person, big star. And it's still, I don't know how many people that's happened for. I don't think it's happened to, for too many people, but it didn't happen for me. But at the time, I was, that's what my goal was. So I thought, let me not release this because it's so different from everything I do. And I totally forgot about it. And then I was doing an interview with a, a journalist, and, and she reminded me about that song because she knows me a long time. And uh, I was like, what? I got to look for that CD. Do I still even have one? And I found it. And I, I just put it out there, and I put it on my social media, and people loved it. And it was just something they never heard me do before. So it's kind of has a new like like life to it now that's almost like an underground thing for J.D. Danner. So I thought I would share that with you because, I don't know, it was, it was fit that. You know, it was recently released and under the radar for many years. <laughs> yeah, no, I think with that wonderful introduction, it's about time we... Um give a listen to The Lover You Once Knew by J.D. Danner. But first, um, of course, J.D., thank you so much for coming on. It, I had a blast. It was, Time flew by. It was very oh, nice. Yeah. If you also had a good time listening to this, um, you listening in the car, in bed, by the radio, in the kitchen, doing whatever you do, um, you can support this show financially through patreon.com slash queer sounds. If you've got an extra dollar, euro, if you, whatever currency you use um, lying around, so you can send it my way through patreon.com slash queer sounds. If you um, don't have the extra cash because, you know, can very well understand, uh, you can also help this show by giving it a shout out on the socials. That's at Queer Sounds Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. Um, 
if you want to get in touch directly, you can do so through uh, queersounds.com slash contact. Um, you can fill in the contact form there. And um, yeah, once again, JD, thanks for coming on and thank you for listening. Goodbye. Thank you for having me. Why do you always run back to the love you once knew? You're addicted to a touch. That's true. My addiction. And I confess. My addiction. My addiction is you.